This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach and an author, and my latest book is Find Your Happy at Work. Today, we'll be talking about how some judges are focusing on well-being because it's important for them as leaders and decision makers, both within the courtroom and in their broader roles and lives. And we have two extraordinary guests. Dr. Mishkat Al-Mumin is a distinguished leader in the realm of international law. In 2004, she became the first minister of environment for the nation of Iraq, and she went on to become a well-known environmental and human rights lawyer. Today, Dr. Mishkat is academic director of the National Judicial College. Also with us is a return guest here on Jazzed About Work, and a dear friend of mine, Judge Gail Williams Byers. Last year, after almost 11 years in her courtroom in South Euclid, Ohio, she retired from her role as judge, and now she's working with Dr. Mishkat as a judicial fellow at the college. Being a judge can be a very stressful job. Our guests will talk about how they manage their stress, and they will share some techniques that can be useful for the rest of us. Today we're going to be talking about ways that well-being supports leadership and and particularly about how some judges have found that managing their own self-care can support um, their role as leaders and make a difference in their courtroom. But before we get into all of this, Dr. Mishkat and Judge Gale, uh, we always like to hear a little bit about our guest career paths. Now, uh, we have had Judge Gale here more than once, so we know a little bit about her, but um, I'd like to get an update. And then, uh, Dr. Mishkat, if you're willing, would you tell us a bit about how your career brought you to the National Judicial College? But first, let's start with Judge Gale. Well, I want to start by saying, Bev, thanks so much for having me back. It's always a wonderful opportunity to talk to you and your audience at Jazzed About Work. And um, since the last time I was here um, on Jazzed About Work, I have retired from the bench in South Euclid, Ohio. I had a wonderful opportunity to work um, with the great production outfit in in New York, um, Big Fish Entertainment and A&E Network on um, a live court TV um, program. And from there, I was recruited to join the National Judicial College full-time as their only judicial fellow. And so I've now um, begun teaching and working with judges nationwide full-time, which I absolutely enjoy. Um, there may be an opportunity perhaps somewhere in the, in the future to return to television, but for now, I am really enjoying the work that I do um, directly with our, our guest here today, Dr. Mishkat, who's the director, um, or the academic director for the National Judicial College, and I'll give her an opportunity to to talk more about how she navigated her way and her career to the college. But it's really been 
um, a wonderful opportunity to do this work and to talk very candidly with judges who have this experience day in and day out of dealing with cases and still being human beings um, during and even after they leave the courthouse. So thank you for this conversation, and I look forward to our discussion. Well, thank you. And uh, Dr. Mishkat, please tell us how uh, your career, which has been very distinguished in law and public service, how how did it bring you to the place where you're now uh, in charge of curriculum for the National Judicial College? Thank you, Beth, for this wonderful opportunity. I appreciate being here and having this um, opportunity to talk to uh, you and our listeners. My career started in a war-torn country. I lived most of my life uh, in Iraq, where um, I studied law and um, I worked as an attorney and then a professor uh, teaching at the law school. And then I became the first environmental minister for the country. It may sound uh, easy when I uh, list it that way, However, living through it was something totally different. Um, I chose to study law because I was searching for a way to protect human rights under a dictatorship that violated human rights left and right. In particular, uh, you know, women were marginalized and uh, were uh, perceived as second-class citizen, if that. After graduating uh, from the law school, I, I couldn't work in the law school. Uh, the uh, requirement for employment was um, only male candidates will be considered. And it continued that way. Rather than waiting for them to open up their doors for me, I worked as an attorney and I represented women seeking divorce uh, from their husbands or seeking custody. Um, These cases are not looked upon kindly uh, by the community. Nevertheless, I wanted to give women a voice of their own, and I continued to uh, support them in their struggle to either get custody or to get um, financial support. Throughout my work, I learned a lot about how to empower people. Uh, shortly um, after um, you know, my, building my career as, as an attorney, an opportunity came to work at uh, the College of Law. Uh, many professors uh, at the time left Iraq because of the uh, UN embargo. Uh, resulted in um, high inflation rates and uh, difficulties in uh, sustaining uh, livelihood. So uh, the same uh, law school that rejected me many times decided that it's time to uh, maybe employ uh, women. Uh, I was given classes that no one wants. Nevertheless, I used my uh, academic research and scholar uh, practitional identity to engage the class. Um, The class I was given um, had a reputation of um, kicking out professors um, after they start the class. Uh, They laser tag them, they 
um, made fun about them, and they were high-ranking um, officers um, and civil servants. No one could touch them at the time under the uh, Hussein regime. I challenged them intellectually, and I started giving them case laws rather than lecturing at them. Through the process, they learned the value of being a scholar practitioner, someone who employs knowledge to engage learners. And uh, sooner rather than later, they became um, more cooperative and more engaging with the class. Around that time, the regime changed and uh, the interim government was uh, about to be put together. I strongly advocated to uh, put women in positions of power, in positions where they can make decisions and enact policies. So the opportunity came to establish the uh, Environmental Ministry or the uh, EPA in Iraq, a department that did not exist before in a country that engaged in wars for uh, more than two decades. I took it upon myself to give the environment a voice, just like I gave women a voice. And I started working tirelessly on uh, rebuilding the Iraqi environment, an environment that suffered from chemical weapons, an environment that suffered from um, ecocide and many other distractions. Through the process, I came to provide um, water services for vulnerable people, communities who did not have access. Believe it or not, that resulted in me being targeted. Um, in August of 2004, I survived a suicide bomb attack on my life, which Al-Qaeda later on issued a statement saying they will target me wherever I go. Believe it or not, after surviving this attempt, after seeing my bodyguard evaporate, I went straight forward to the ministry. As a leader, I felt I need to be with the people I'm set to lead rather than hiding in my office. Furthermore, my um, uh, leadership skills were heightened. So uh, my briefcase was in the car that was attacked my cell phone was in the car. I went under fire to retrieve them and uh, make sure that no one will have access to uh, highly sensitive information. Um, these attacks did not deter me, even though they were, you know, um, scary, they were uh, deliberate and systematic. I continued to serve until my term has ended. And then I uh, came to the United States as a, as a student studying at uh, the Kennedy School of Government, uh, part of Harvard University. My leadership skills were honed through war and distraction, but I managed to transform all of that to learn how to advocate for peace and how to advocate for a middle ground where uh, leaders and followers can come together to discuss issues and collaborate. Through the process, I was following up with the progress that the National Judicial College is making. 
and they had an opening for an academic director. And I felt I can contribute to their success. And I wanted to bring that uh, perspective of collaboration, of finding middle ground, of uh, advocating for leadership, uh, well-being to the college. And I'm grateful that you know, they accepted my application and allowed me to be part of their team. Thank you. Well, that is an amazing career path. And so now you are at the Judicial College and your role is to teach and to provide teaching for judges. And one of the things that uh, we chatted about recently is how we think of judges, I think, if, if you're not familiar with the role of a judge, we tend to think of it as sort of a, a simple lawyer role, but it's a very complicated role, including a role as um, leadership, a leadership role that really matters. And I know that one of the things that um, you are both interested in is how managing one's level of stress, managing one's health, managing one's mindset can help a judge to become a more effective leader. Is, is, is that correct? Indeed, Bev. Uh, I view judges as uh, judicial leaders. Uh, they are not just adjudicating cases. They are required to lead their courtroom. That position is highly stressful. It reminds me of my position back when I was leading the Ministry of the Environment. I had to navigate many difficulties and I had to you know, maintain all the uh, communications and uh, information to myself, even though they were stressful, even though they were challenging and oftentimes impact my health. I decided to, uh, you know, pursue that venue further with uh, Judge Gale and uh, her experience. Uh, one way of helping judges become leaders is to encourage them to have their judicial philosophy. Oftentimes, we think of a philosophy as a document that lives in an ivory tower. In fact, it's a document that we use all the time to make difficult decisions. And judges make these decisions on daily basis. Their emotional intelligence, their um, uh, feelings, they are heightened when they are listening to all these testimonies and uh, you know, going through all these cases. Just like when I had to uh, go to impoverished community and see how difficult it is to get safe drinking water in a desert climate. I had seen mothers and, and children and infants suffer tremendously. And um, at the time, everyone was saying nothing can be done, nothing can be done. There's always something that can be done. And I learned that through my, my leadership philosophy. Uh, one other item that I, um, you know, use a lot is my ability to uh, sit back and reflect on the situation rather than taking um, a step forward um, 
to address a situation while everybody uh, is engaged, whether they are engaged emotionally, mentally, or even uh, through laws and policies. We need to take time to reflect before we make these decisions, especially when we know that somebody's life is at stake here. Um, I use several techniques, and um, I find these techniques helpful. I shared them with Judge Gale uh, to discover that she uses similar techniques. So we start uh, collaborating further on how to bring uh, that uh, concept forth. Uh, please let me know if you would like me to continue, or uh, maybe Judge Gale can um, take it from here. Well, let me... Um I definitely want to keep going in this direction, but let me start with a, a question for Judge Gale, because you're very recently out of the courtroom. So um, Dr. Mishkat points out that two important ways of kind of managing yourself if you're a judge is one is to have a philosophy that can always be a guide, and the other one is to have techniques that will help you step away from, you know, when you're... Um, maybe hijacked by the tension and the fight or flight uh, state that uh, comes with decision making, find a way to kind of step away and be able to get into your, your deeper self and, um, and reflect. Um, what are some of the things that um, Judge Gale, you were doing in the courtroom as you were leaving. What did you? What had you learned to be particularly helpful to you when things were very tense? And I'm asking you not only as a judge, but as a leader of all those people in the courtroom who are also in a very stressful situation. What are, What are some of the things that you do to keep the tension down for your whole team uh, in, in very stressful times in the courtroom? So thank you for, for that question. What I'd like to say is I, I really appreciate this discussion, um, not only as it addresses judges and their sort of unique role, but I actually think that the experiences that I had as a leader um, in that particular room are transferable to leaders in any environment, just about. Um, I used to think of myself um, as kind of the human thermostat in the courtroom. Um, and I could kind of set the temperature, if you will, even if there were um, some elements that came through to kind of cause those temperatures to fluctuate in the form of perhaps attitudes or sensitivities or um, outbursts or emotions. Um, everyone always looked to me to kind of determine if or how it was okay to respond. And the, that is the role to some degree of leaders um, to, to find guidance, especially in, in difficult times. And for judges and from the judicial perspective, um, it is so important for judges to recognize their responsibility um, to being sensitive to everyone around them. I think one of the things we can do perhaps for judges and all leaders is to better prepare them for the roles that they will take on before they get there. See, no one ever prepares a judge really emotionally for their experience on the bench. You can 
do an awful lot of training, learning, um, and and studying. But there is no Socratic method for um, how you ingest, how you take in, how you deal with traumatic testimony, or how you assist someone on your court staff who was never expecting to see crime scene photos or videos or how they deal with that. And so these are some of the experiences that I would see and I would have and would have and would feel required as a leader to help others navigate through. If you're having a jury trial, um, the responsibility isn't just to the court staff. It now extends to jurors, perhaps to witnesses, to others who are there to help make sure that the court system moves forward, such as maybe jury commissioners or or even bailiffs. Again, these are individuals who may not be quite prepared to hear what may be stunning or tragic or traumatic testimony or triggering testimony. Um, and you don't know what triggers one person or another. And so over time, um, I had to develop mechanisms to be able to take the temperature of the room to know that it was responding to my temperature, if you will. If I seem to react or respond to something, then the room would generally follow. That's how leaders work. Um, and in taking that into consideration, um, I had to also be conscious and cognizant of how others were impacted or affected. If it's a trial about domestic violence. And although Vordir may, which is the process of jury selection, questioning jurors for their appropriateness to sit on the jury, there may have been something about the testimony that triggered them. And so you may have a particularly emotional juror. Um, it's my responsibility to figure out if that's a good time to take a break. Or if for me, if I felt overwhelmed by perhaps an onslaught of evidence or information or testimony or something else. One thing I learned from um, from Ohio former um, Supreme Court Justice Yvette McGee Brown um, during my first investiture is she reminded me that the beauty of being a judge and a, and a leader in that instance is that you know nothing happens in the room without me, and so it's perfectly okay to take a break. And so I would actually stop and take a break. And I'd even leave the bench if I had to, usually to retreat to my office. Um, sometimes even if you need a breath of fresh air, but I would go and I would take a break and physically disconnect from the environment in order to recalibrate my mind in order to come back. But at the same time, I would always check in with my bailiff. My chief bailiff would normally be right in the courtroom with me, whomever the clerk is that's sitting right next to me. Um, and, and anyone else I thought was perhaps impacted or affected, because in all likelihood, if I'm impacted and I'm affected and I'm a human being, good leaders are able to, to some degree, put aside their own issues of self in order to deal with those around them to make sure that they're okay. Now, that's not to say to ignore yourself, but I did employ the stop method, which you know requires you to kind of stop, take a breath observe and proceed. Well, sometimes that stop is a full stop and it means really fully disconnecting 
Um, and you may have to take a breath outside the presence of others, but you do have to take that moment and before you proceed. And it's so important to not just do that, but to give others the agency and the ability and the license to do the same thing by humanizing them and showing leadership through empathy and leadership through vulnerability and providing them the latitude to have the experience of their emotions in those very trying environments. Because what happens often to judges is the idea that you signed up for this. You knew it was coming. Uh, Yeah, it gets tough, but you should be okay. And the truth is the psychological impact on folks who have to hear this kind of information day in and day out with no one to talk to, and because you can't talk about pending cases, with no outlets, no healthy outlets really does mean we have to arm judges with a different layer of tools in order to properly deal with these cases to make informed decisions so that they too are healthy. Wow. The um, uh, research shows that probably the best predictor of leadership success is emotional intelligence. And of course that includes noticing your own emotion, having the ability to kind of step away from it a little bit and decide what to do with that emotion, whether to uh, act or to put them aside, but also understanding how, as you were just describing, how your emotion can impact other people and, and then taking some responsibility for the emotional state of the people around you. And that's, that's very difficult work, but we're getting right at the essence of leadership and judges are in the middle of it. I, I would like to go back to um, Dr. Mishkat. You were volunteering to talk a little bit more about how you manage the extreme stress so that as a leader, you wouldn't be hijacked by the a difficult situation you were in and, and be able to kind of step aside a little bit and, and keep focusing on the people you were leading. Can you share some ways? Uh, Judge Gale used the stop method. and there, there are a variety of things. How, how do you typically um, manage yourself if you feel that that stress is building and you're in danger of, of losing your, your cool, you're becoming, you want to get back to the deep, thoughtful part of your brain and not kind of be at the, this, the part where you want to run. How do, what do you do? Thank you, Beth, for that question. I'm going to take you back to the comment you kindly provided earlier. Um, which is uh, to connect with the leader um, deeper self. I would like, as a leader, to connect with my higher self. Um, And I use uh, some techniques to connect with my higher self. Uh, I keep my values, my leadership values, in my higher self. So um, in times of difficulties, I'd like to connect with my higher self to see if I can look and examine the situation differently. One technique that I use, um, I call it uh, the friend technique. I say to myself, okay, Mishka, if a friend of yours, and I usually try to visualize that friend, 
would come and say, here's what I've experienced at work today. What would you say to them? That technique help, helps me a lot in terms of disconnecting from the situation as a person who's involved in it and taking a step back to examine it through the eyes of um, someone else, someone who's not part of it. Uh, disconnecting from the situation um, as someone who's taking part in playing the actions, um, uh, being maybe under attack through, uh, uh, you know, behavior, um, through uh, even the conversation. The, the conversation can get heated and people can say, you know, uh, some... Uh, uh, aggressive uh, terms that the leader is not used to it. Nevertheless, once you step away from the situation, take a step back and see it through different eyes, you will be amazed at how many solutions, how many tools you have. Not only your uh, leadership philosophy, but your uh, leadership portfolio, your decision-making module, um, uh, uh, changing the team dynamic, uh, all of these uh, plays into uh, the situation. And then I try also to either write down uh, the situation as I experience it. And um, I um, took it upon myself to try to write it in a neutral tone. So each time I try to say, I did da 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 da, rather than doing that, I say, uh, for example, uh, the academic leader, the minister, uh, the chairperson, I refer to my title to continue to disconnect from the situation uh, and allow my emotion to settle. Sometimes I don't have um, you know, a pen and paper handy, but I have my phone handy. So I try to record it and kind of um, you know, that uh, recording will allow me to hear it uh, through um, the way uh, or hear my voice, how I experience it, how I'm describing it, what words I'm using. And then similarly, if, if I have a written uh, account, I would read it and I try to read it out loud. While I'm reading or listening, I would take down uh, some notes uh, just to you know, have something to uh, anchor my reflection on. And uh, last but not least, I always try to go back to uh, one of my books. Because I'm a scholar practitioner, I have to make a decision based on knowledge, not based on emotions. Uh, the other piece that I try to incorporate in my decision-making, if it's available, is data. So I make it out of driven decision-making. All of this is to isolate the emotions or to at least get them to calm down. So the decision will be fair, will be balanced, and uh, will help the organization and the individuals to move forward versus uh, being stuck in a negative uh, situation. Um, before I um, hand over back to you, I'll give you um, uh, a story I'd like to share with you. Uh, one of the positions that I worked in 
here in the United States is the chairperson of the Iraqi department at Middle East School uh, two, uh, part of the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, Monterey, California. When I was selected to serve as a chair, so many colleagues, they were um, shaking my hands and saying, our deepest condolences, you just uh, committed career suicide. And I was, what's going on? Why are you saying oh. these things? Yes, it was really a shock to me. Then they said, uh, you know what? This department is dysfunctional. People over there, teachers, they don't work. They complain all the time about management. They complain about each other. And, uh, you know, their uh, scores or success rate is really low. So you don't know what you um, are uh, getting into. I have to tell you, Bev, it was one of the most rewarding experiences that I had. It's true. When I first... What did you do? What did you do to change things? Or was it a wrong assessment? Um, I, I employed two things. First, I had um, active listening and effective listening techniques. So rather than isolating myself from the teachers and the students, I um, you know, adopted an open door policy. So my door was always open. And I invited teachers to come and discuss issues with me. Part of their hesitation before to discuss uh, you know, um, uh, teaching challenges with the, with the, their leadership. They were afraid of being judged. So you are bringing this issue to my attention. It means you don't know how to do it. And I'm going to take count of it. Whatever issue they brought, I listened um, carefully, effectively. I asked questions. I engaged them in the conversation. And I always you know, applied the same techniques that I use for myself. I said, I would ask the teacher, if it was your colleague who is bringing that issue to you, what would you say to them? So this way I'm engaging them in the uh, solution rather than, you know, having their mindset be focused on the problem. Slowly but surely, we started seeing improvement, improvement in results improvement in uh, student engagement, improvement in creating an environment that is conducive to learning. And uh, trust was built. So now teachers uh, can come to me with any issue, and they know that I would strive to uh, find a solution for them. Rather than judging them or, uh, you know, uh, holding them accountable for something they didn't do, but they were trying to find a solution for. The teachers started sharing the information with the students, who then started coming uh, to my office to address their issues. As you know, um, in language learning, um, the meaning is lost in translation. So oftentimes we have our protocols to correct and grade uh, any input from the students. Nevertheless, you cannot come with um, you know, a protocol without allowing some room for interpretation. Um, and that's the essence of language learning. 
And sometimes, uh, because again, teachers were so fearful that you know we will, uh, they will be judged. They were applying uh, the letter of the protocol, not the uh, spirit of it. I allowed each student to come and present their point of view about their answers to a committee that involved the military instructor, involved a, a you know, uh, uh, oral proficiency uh, interviewers and uh, another faculty member. And whatever decision they would reach in terms of granting or denying um, the student their points, I adopted it. Effective learning techniques uh, and, um, sorry, effective listening techniques can be tremendous. And having the opportunity to create an environment, a safe environment, where anyone can, um, you know, uh, fail, make a mistake, um, and rather than take it upon themselves um, that they did something wrong, they can come to their leaders to find solutions rather than being judged. Um, while uh, evaluating the person or the follower, uh, skills and expertise uh, is part of the leader's uh, responsibility. Empowering the follower to utilize their strengths to address their weaknesses is another responsibility of the follower. To do that, you have to create an environment where people can fail without being judged. Otherwise, you are denying them the opportunity to develop their skills and expertise. Um, at the end of, uh, you know, uh, my term as a chairperson, the uh, commandant uh, heard about my contribution and decided to award me with the coin of excellence to bring, uh, because I brought peace, this is what, uh, you know, uh, the certificate says, uh, you brought peace, harmony um, to the Iraqi department, which uh, enabled them to perform uh, their duties. As I told you, it was one of my uh, most rewarding experiences. Um, and uh, I truly, truly enjoyed it. And I learned from my colleagues as well. Each faculty member has an experience, has something that they can contribute to the learning process. And that was my takeaway. Um, so I took it upon myself and I uh, adopt a similar approach here at the National Judicial College to uh, listen to faculty members, to seek their feedback, to work with them collaboratively, to strive towards uh, academic excellence through uh, collaboration, research, and um, uh, engaging uh, activities and materials. Back to you, Bev. Well, I think, I think we've just done a circle because what you described is is you were getting at the essence of leadership, I think, which is that non-judgmental listening, true listening is is really a superpower. And in any context, um, listening and uh, providing psychological safety for people to say the truth is an important part of it. And 
a judge, um, of course, uh, has to be non-judgmental when they're listening to all of the different things that are going into the courtroom. But that is terrifically stressful to, I mean, you have to take care of yourself. You have to know what state of mind you're in. A lot of self-awareness is required for that kind of leadership. So I think it takes us right back to where we started, which is that knowing how to manage their own minds, knowing how to observe their emotions and not be hijacked by them, knowing how to to, to listen empathetically, but also have self-empathy. Those are critical things for judges to do. They're the same things that are important for other leaders, but they're kind of magnified. And I, and so it sounds like what the two of you are doing as you're looking at curriculum in the academy is to try to get at some of these issues and maybe even have training about that kind of leadership. Is that correct? Bev, I would say I would welcome um, that type of very specific intent um, actually coaching more so than training. Um, and the reason I use coaching instead of training, I think that training um, kind of suggests um, a one-time experience, a course of sorts. But coaching, um, I think, is more indicative of um, a long-term commitment or a longer-term commitment with uh, perhaps the help of a professional um, in these areas to help judges develop um, the emotional intelligence that's necessary to not only balance the work that they do, but to also balance the environment that they're in. And it's not just a courtroom environment. And this is for any leader, quite frankly. Um, I like to say, you know, as a judge, you know, you work in those robes, you don't live in them, right? And if you're any kind of leader, you you work in your office, but you likely don't live in your office. So whatever tools you're gaining, they need to transcend your professional environment so that you're able to be a healthy individual, an empathetic and compassionate in- individual not only your work environment, but that that also translates into what you're willing to package up, take with you and carry home as well. Because no doubt these experiences can kind of follow along um, almost like, you know, that dust ball behind pig pen um, and peanuts. And, and it'll <laughs> just kind of follow you wherever you go until it is addressed and or resolved um, and having the right tools to address it and resolve it, no matter what kind of leader you are, is so important to ensuring your overall health, not just your physical health, but your mental your mental health and your emotional health can truly have manifestations on your physical health. It can, you know, it can encourage anxiety attacks. It can encourage poor eating habits. It can leave you unsocialized. It can have you isolated. You know, for jurists, it's already a lonely and isolating job. It's a very, very lonely profession. Um, and by some, um, by some degrees, necessarily so. But human beings were created for communion. They were created for relationships. So having that amount of, of stress sometimes on a single individual without proper outlet 
um, over a long period of time can't possibly be good for anyone. So being able to manage all of that with the help of um, some coaching, I think, um, is really beneficiary beneficial to the judiciary as a whole. And that's one of the things we just don't really see um, a lot of preparation for when we're preparing folks to ascend to the bench. Even for some veteran judges who've been there for a long time, we we don't see that as a purposeful practice. It's something that they have to conscientiously think of and be intent in working on during their time as a jurist or a leader um, in whatever capacity they're in. So I invite that question um, that you you've just raised, and I actually think it's very thoughtful um, and thoughtfully and artfully put. Because for the benefit of judges who do this hard work each day, um, they need to be able to balance those things, but not just in a course, but perhaps as um, a form of long-term coaching or some intermediate um, level of coaching that takes them a little away so they can apply those tools long-term. Well, Judge Gale, you know you're singing my song when you start talking about coaching as a terrific way to build the tools, uh, some of the the listening and contemplative uh, tools that are part of leadership. But coaching of judges would be that would be a very new thing, I think. And I that I think that's a conversation we're going to have to um, save for another day. But I think it's very exciting. Uh, what the two of you are doing as you um, look at the curriculum of the college and you think about what is it that judges really need in order to be the excellent leaders that they're required to be but aren't always given the tool for. So I, I wish you you both well in that um work that you're you're doing and uh, I look forward to hearing about it more in the future. Meanwhile, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, you both uh, are such great thinkers and in both cases it's come from really hard work. so thank you. Thank you, Bev. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And as always, this has been a, a wonderfully enlightening conversation. Um, it always is, and it's always a joy to speak with you, Bev. So thank you. We look forward to continuing the conversation, continuing the discussion, and moving the ball forward. Thank you. Today we've been talking with Dr. Mishkat Almuman and Judge Gail Williams-Byers about how judges can manage stress. And you can too. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. Our sponsor is the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Today's tip is that there are many simple ways to reduce your workplace stress. And if you can move away from constantly being on edge, you'll be not only happier, but also more successful and productive. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work. Please come back soon. Music